This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. This is episode 603. If the market starts to recover quicker, we got to be there to put the uh, pedal to the metal, so to speak, but not all the way. And if, if we see things stumble further, we got to be prepared to potentially scale back. So we're just being much more attuned to the leading indicators, the trends, and, and really trying to stay on top of that. And then when you see a sustainable trend, not just a, a blip, that's when you start to react. And Hey, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to John Bonney, CFO of Harness. John has had multiple CFO tours of duty within the SaaS realm. He came up the FP&A ranks and ran FP&A for companies such as Ariba. John looks back for us and forward from 2020 and beyond. We're back with John after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. Hello, we're speaking to John Bonney, CFO of Harness. John, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, we're looking forward to finding out about Harness, but as always, John, we're going to begin by asking our guests to look back for us and identify some of those career experiences that you feel prepared you for a finance leadership role, of which you've had several uh, to date. So uh, please take a look back for us and tell us what comes to mind. Sure. Um, you know, before before Harness, um, you know, I actually start way back. So I, I came out of school um, with, a, with a master's degree in accounting and did my CPA at the same time, um, which, which I was fortunate to do. Um, and, and I, from there, I spent about five years uh, in my tour of duty, if you will, with uh, with the Big Five or Ernst and Young. And you know, I think that was a really solid foundation for beginning a finance career. I was able, you know, it's one of those places where, for a, a recent graduate to be able to talk with a CFO of a public company, you know, during an audit and, and understand all those different things is pretty powerful, right? So that was a great experience a combination of client satisfaction, collaboration, and learnings. Um, I quickly moved into FP&A, sort of financial planning and analysis, as I found myself gravitating uh, towards modeling and, and trying to 
project the future, if you will, which is, which is of course, never easy, but always a challenge. Um, and so I moved into sort of FP&A um, and I, I worked at a startup in San Francisco, my first high growth startup going from about 100 people to 700 people in about three and a half years. And that was a, uh, a terrific journey of learnings, um, you know, gone through multiple rounds of, of funding. And, um, and, and that was really I cut my chops on understanding what it means to work in a high growth environment uh, as an insider, right, as a corporate person. Um, from there, I got a chance to go to Ariba as a public company. Um, as a young public company then, and, and ran FP&A. Um, and one of the most memorial, uh, memorable experiences that I had there was, um, you know, obviously building a team, a global team, right? It was my first chance to build a global team of FP&A folks all the way from, from, from Brazil to South Africa. We had a large business we purchased um, in a network business where we had divisions all over the world. And that was just phenomenal international experience. And then ultimately, with SAP came knocking on the door uh, and the CFO and I were the lucky ones to sort of lead the, the sale process to SAP along with the other folks. And that was a terrific experience. Um, you know, really, really hard work for four months, four to five months. But, uh, you know, you never learn more about a business uh, or what you know about a business when, when someone's, you know, looking to potentially buy you, but they're also going to look under every single rock that there could be to see if there's anything they uh, they don't like, right? So it was an amazing, amazing journey. Then I fast forward, began to become a CFO at, uh, was at SAP for a while, then I became a CFO at a startups. Uh, Financial Force was one in San Francisco where I was able to kind of jump in again at about a couple hundred people and scaled up to 700 people over three years and over hundred million in, in revenue. And that was a terrific journey. Um, really my first time as a standalone CFO, did some consulting, uh, and ultimately ended up at Harness again, where where I'm really excited because Harness is at the ground floor. Um, I was able to build the team from scratch, and and we're looking to build a you know kind of a billion dollar plus business, and and we're not looking to you know make a quick buck or turn the company right. We're literally looking to for to work with Jody who who founded AppDynamics to to a huge much bigger platform business, and that's something I'm really interested in doing. John, yeah. Some of our listeners might recall that we had you uh, on the podcast a a number of years back while you were CFO at uh, Financial Force. And I recall what what I recall about that interview or one of several things I recall uh, was that you were a pretty effective communicator. And I'm wondering uh, how you got those skills. Was there again, FP&A doesn't guarantee that you're going to become a great uh, communicator. Where where are those skills sort of rooted? Well, I appreciate. Yeah, I, I, I try my best. I mean, I, I think ultimately, you know, my philosophy in, in business in general, right, is, is I, I ultimately think of finance as a tool, right? Finance and accounting and, um, you know, those things are merely tools in which you help businesses succeed, right? And But without practicing the communication element of that and without collaborating with people and without actually making sure that folks understand what these numbers mean and why and why they're important, right? It, it, it kind of becomes pointless, right? And so what I found out early in my career, and you know, even as early as an auditor, you know, you're asking people to do things and you've got to be convincing because it's not always something they want to do or something fun to do, right? And so you really need to always think of the human element. Um, and that's something that I've just kind of like gravitated towards, you know, all my life. Um, 
I'm a generally a social person and I just happen to, you know, like and enjoy numbers. But when I can combine the two and sort of help educate folks on why things are important uh, and why measuring things is important, um, it just tends to it tends to work better, you know, and, and that's kind of how I've grown. So fairly early on, I, I just uh, springboarding or of what you just shared, even as an auditor, uh, you would be having conversations, educating other people as to what what things meant. And again, not every finance executive does that when they're an auditor. You, I, I just think you are perhaps more. Are you an extrovert? How would you describe yourself? Yeah, I think just inherently, I, you know, it's funny when I took that test as, as a younger person, I was I was kind of on this, you know, the sixty percent extrovert, if you will, right? Forty percent introvert, sixty percent extrovert. So. That, that, you know, that helps and I get energy from it, right? I do enjoy, but, but I, you know, and I enjoy interacting with people. Um, and like I said, as an auditor, really coming out of my college career, you know, understanding how big of an impact you can have by communicating well and, and sitting in people's shoes. And, uh, you know, I even had an example where way back when I had a, a client, you know, come to me that was, um, was being pressured to record certain things the, the wrong way. Right. And he came to me because he felt comfortable, right, sort of informing me of that. And we were able to handle it in a way that uh, most auditors, you know, don't don't get those things handed to them. They have to find them. Right. So I think that kind of thing just plays well. And it's you know, I'm lucky to have that as kind of an innate thing I like. You know, so. Well, uh, we're going to come back to your career during the mentoring round towards the end of the, the interview, uh, because there are some other areas I want to touch on with you. But. Uh, right now, let's find out about Harness. What does this company do exactly, and what uh, you know? What sets it apart in the market? Tell us about it. Sure. Yeah. You know, this is um, Harness was was my first foray into what I'll call the uh, dev, DevOps space. You'll you'll hear that term a lot. I've traditionally been in application space, so think of like we said, cloud ERP, Ariba. These are all business applications, right? That are run by and so so Harness is squarely in sort of the engineering and DevOps world. And the reason it really I got attracted to that space is the future. That's what the future is all about. I mean, even if you look at the coronavirus impacts today, like like you and I on this on this podcast and, and working through a, um, you know, a, you know, a telecommuting presence here. I mean, it's all about software helping the world continue to move on. Right. And, and move better, faster, cheaper. So Harness in a nutshell is a platform that developers can use. Um, to basically build software and put it into production, like in, so that you and I can use it much faster and much safer and much much more error free than a lot of the traditional methods, which relied on sort of heavy scripting and manual work by engineers. So we kind of automate that whole production deployment uh, using machine learning and, and AI um, to really help streamline the process and identify if something's wrong. We can kind of hit an undo button to frankly turn a production back or a deployment back, right? If something doesn't go right. So it's kind of advancing that whole way. So engineers can go back to building products and code and not spend so much time running it, so to speak. That makes sense. Absolutely. Now you've stepped into uh, multiple CFO roles. So you stepped into this role roughly about a year ago. I guess we we're celebrating your first anniversary there. Yeah, correct. Uh, but what, what can you tell us uh, in terms of what did you as you came on board, how did you make this role yours? What was, you know, John Bonney going to bring to this role for, for Harness? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Jody, Jody and I, who's the founder CEO, you know, had some great discussions on this as I was, uh, we were, were meeting each other and getting to know each other. And, 
my philosophy, again, kind of touched on what we talked about earlier, but as a CFO is that if you're, you know, closing the books and on um, reporting on numbers is, is a very, honestly, small part of being a good CFO's job, right? That it's almost like what you got to do for breakfast is you got to close, close the books, make sure the numbers are accurate, right? Um, but what's much more interesting is, is, is really how you help the business grow, how you help it become more efficient. How do you direct capital in certain areas? How do you raise capital? Um, and, and, you know, how do you invest in your people? And so all these things are much more interesting to me uh, and Jody as well. And he was looking for a business partner, right? And, and not just a, a numbers person, not just a numbers person. So, so that was kind of our, our discussion. And that's what, what my mission was coming into Harness is, you know, we're going we're gonna to build a really big company. So we have to start early and build the right foundation. Right. So building the right set of people with the right set of skills um, and, and really being a business partner, number one. I'm, I'm wondering if you can share with us some of your early decision making there. Again, only you don't have to go far back, but, um, you know, you stepped into the role and you uh, assessed uh, the team. You looked at the tools that were currently available and uh, determined whether you had the, the lines of sight into uh all the numbers that you needed to have to understand that the company was uh, performing the way it should be, or it was what, what you, uh, everyone expected it to be. I mean, was there a piece that you had to pull into place or what could you tell us about, you know, what needed to happen your first 12 months? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's hard to believe, you know, it's, 12 months has gone by in a blink of an eye, um, but it also feels like an eternity in a good way, meaning that we've done so much in 12 months. And so it's kind of a, an interesting feeling. But, you know, I think coming in, you know, it's interesting. I was actually, believe it or not, the very first internal finance employee for the business. So in other words, the entire IT, legal, um, uh, finance, accounting was all outsourced when I started. And, 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 you know, and this was the first time for me to come in literally with a blank slate like zero. Um, but I found that I found that I gravitated towards that. You know, I was I was initially a little bit like, whoa, I'm not sure I'm going to be good at that because I've usually done bigger kind of scale things from bigger side. But then I said, you know what, this could be really fun. And, and I know we're going to get to really big. So I might as well set the foundation. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, my my focus um, coming in was was all about building the right team. Right. I mean, I, I had to, at the same time I had to do all the work, you know, roll your hands up do the modeling, do understand where your, your, your books are closed and where they're not. Jody's, this is not Jody's first rodeo. So luck, luckily he had a foundation there that was, was um, from his learnings at his last companies. So, so that was good. And what I did is I just picked up the baton and just kind of accelerated everything. So I built a team from zero to about eight people in five months that um, we've got a head of legal, head of IT, um, head of accounting controller and a head of FP&A. Uh, and myself, and we're all hands-on, we're all business partners, um, but we're now scaling and putting in, we put in over a dozen systems in 12 months to help us, to help the, the company scale. Um, and, you know, and we're growing at a, at, a, at a breakneck pace, so it was important to get that in there early, to get all of that foundation done. Having, again, having uh, been in uh, several different uh, CFO roles, I'm wondering if there's a piece of this as you stepped into this role compared to say, if you had stepped into a role 10 years ago, you look at what's outsourced, what's done in-house, the type of talent you have to find. 
I'm wondering if CFOs are prioritizing differently today. And whereas 10 years ago, you'd be like, we don't need to outsource that any longer. Let's bring that in-house. Maybe today you're saying, you know what? That's not a priority for us. Let's keep that process outsourced. I mean, can you, can you give us a sense of, was there any decision-making like that where you said, you know what? I, I would have done this differently 10 years ago, but I know better today. Here's what we're going to do. Anything like that? Yeah, I do. You know, a lot of it depends too on on the pace of which your company's growing. So that can that can change sort of some of your decision making around the timing of sort of the outsourcing versus the insourcing. I, I think generally, you know, as companies are are small, when they're really small, right, the outsourcing makes a ton of sense in, for for functions like IT and things like that, where you need, you know, where one, you know, where you you just don't, it just doesn't make financial sense. To, to have dedicated folks in some of these areas, right? When you're really small. Now, as you grow several hundred people and beyond, like what, you know, what you quickly start to see are bottlenecks, right? Around like, okay, responsiveness for IT needs or as you can imagine, legal bills get really, really high really quickly uh, if you don't have somebody in house as, you, as you're starting to grow. Um, and FP&A, you know, it's funny, you, the FP&A is kind of my background. So that was, that's kind of my job at the beginning. So, I mean, it still is my job. Like all these are my jobs, but like I could actually do that work. Uh, I don't want to say in my sleep because it's hard work, but it's, it's something I'm very uh, natural to. And so I could kind of wait a little bit longer on doing that because as, as I, as the company grows and now we've hired somebody to help, help us do it better. Um, but it's kind of a sequencing of things based on what are your own skill sets and backgrounds. You know the pace of the company, um, and you know we still use right. We'll still use some outsourcing for sometimes some more of the routine work where where lower cost resources make sense and it's more transactional. We still do right, and and because that's a way more efficient model than having you know full time staff that may or may not make sense for some of that. You know, especially as you're growing. Early stage companies, the accounting or the closing of the books is something that uh, remains ripe for outsourcing today. Yeah, closing, you know, early on, for sure. You know, I think early on, you know, closing the books, um, you know, typically complex, it depends on your industry, right? Like, so we're, our, if you're a software company, um, you know, it, some of the revenue can, can get very complex very quickly. However, the revenue piece of that puzzle typically doesn't really become, I'd say, more important or sensitive to how accurate it is until you're maybe north of, you know, call it 10 to 20 million in revenue, it's a 30 million, it becomes more important. But when you're south of that, you know, a lot of companies look at, you probably heard the term ARR, which is an approximate of annual re recurring revenue. And so a lot of that um, can be done from an FP&A lens. You know, so early on, right, the accounting is more about getting your people paid correctly, like your payroll. I mean, keeping your payroll outsourced and accurate early on makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, and you probably heard of companies like Gusto, stuff like that, who do an amazing job at helping companies younger, just kind of automate a lot of that makes a ton of sense for younger companies. Um, but FP&A and, and really looking at where you're putting your capital, where you're going to invest, you know, we, when you raise millions of dollars in a series A, B or C, like you, you, the CFO when they bring in really needs to have an impact on where that goes and how it's monitored and, and who's using it. Right. And accounting is still critically important to understand the, the tracking. But but that can you know, that typically needs can come a little bit later. Right. As you grow. I'm coming back to this idea that your prior experience, certainly uh, 
at Financial Force where you had lines of sight into all these organizations, perhaps, that, that uh, you know, did things differently. Maybe they outsourced this. They, they, they made these types of decisions all the time. And you could see where it worked really well and maybe where it was more problematic. And it occurs to me that, you know, J- Jody must have been like, wow, this here, here's a finance leader who, who gets this stuff, who understands how to build a finance function today. What's a priority? What's not? What can be outsourced? What's uh, What needs to be developed internally? Yeah, I mean, you know, my my whole philosophy on, on building a CFO function, if you will, and sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll call that IT, legal, finance, whatever, is like you want to be able to build processes and systems so that you can scale, you know, one to many, as we say. So like as you go from several hundred employees to thousands of employees, you don't want to have to, you know, what you don't want to do is have to continue to hire, you know, tons and tons and tons of back office and folks to do that manually, right? Because it, what it does, is it creates a lot of cost, creates more error. And then it, frankly, is the service levels go down, right? When you're, when for people who are working, uh, relying on you. And so that's why Jody and I really see eye to eye on adopting like kind of state of the art technology to help our companies scale without having to add tons and tons of people. I mean, a good example, I'll give you a couple um, great company called Airbase, which is a startup in San Francisco we use to manage all of our virtual and uh, and virtual as well as physical credit cards and invoicing. And it automates everything and gives everyone approval chains and budgets. And that would be a full-time equivalent if I didn't have that, right? And so that's a great example of something that we adopted early and we can scale. Um, same thing with billing and revenue recognition software we have. Um, same thing with our, our travel and expense software. Like a lot of these things you got to put in uh, so that you scale and you don't keep adding more and more resources that that cost money and are frankly can be less effective. So yeah, and when you do make a hire, when you go, go to the expense of developing someone perhaps over three years or four years, the skill set you want that person to have uh, is not the same as what a, a piece of software is going to be able to do for you a lot cheaper, a lot quicker. For me, I look at hires as, you know, as I mentioned to you, who's a collaborator, who's a business partner, right? But who who sees the why, right, in the in the numbers and can articulate that and can influence people, right? That to me, that's much more important. Um, having computational expertise, uh, it, frankly, needs to be shifted to systems, right? It's people, it's the judgment that's important. Well, we want to ask you uh, about the uh, current economic devi- uh, environment and how your first 12 months sort of ran into a, a pandemic here. First, can you can you take us back and, and maybe share that uh, wide-eyed moment when you realized uh, this was certainly going to be something much bigger than many uh, business leaders may have suspected? Yeah, no, it's a, it's it's hard to believe. It, it it seems like a long time ago, but it really wasn't. Um, you know, it, it, I I don't know the exact date, but early March, Jody and I were, were having conversations. Obviously, things were starting to hit the news a little bit. Um, you know, we first thought about like, wow, like okay, maybe we need to think about work, start remote work policy, like letting people work from home, right? Like, there's some stuff coming here. We're not sure, and and that quickly snowballed into mid March, where um, where we know that then, then obviously national news, everything's hitting. And, um, you know, we realized at that point that like, okay, this is much more serious. Um, we need to kind of go into, into planning mode, you know, call it, I call it scenario 
analysis mode, right? Um, so we kind of dove in deep right away. I mean, one thing that that uh, Jody's a big fan of is is like not waiting around and moving fast to find you know to look at the to look at what needs to be done and not wait and not uh, and and so we did and we dove in. You know, and, you know, the first thing we were trying to really understand is like, what is our, as you can imagine, we're a growth company, we're growing. And so we're looking like, what are our customers and prospects doing or what are they not doing? So we really dove into our customer base and our pipeline and really tried to understand what's going on there. And then we quickly moved to sort of scenario planning analysis and looking at, you know, as we get into middle to end of March, we quickly realized that, you know what, this is, this is going to be, as you said, it. Uh, a very, a very impactful event. Um, and we need to keep people safe. Like number, obviously number one priority is that people do not feel any sort of pressure of going anywhere that's unsafe. So we quickly, we quickly sort of announced travel bans right in line. Kind of, we, we, you know, Salesforce is a company we watch and admire and they tend to do things, I think, uh, quickly in an order. And, and, you know, we were watching how they reacted and they, they were moving early on some of the travel bans and, so we, you know, we plowed forward, um, and then we uh, really worked closely with our board to come up with new scenarios on what could the the different growth look like this year, and what is our capital structure should look like, and what should our expense structure look like. Things. Can you share with us what uh, you know? Are there certain economic indicators that you're paying attention to, or is there some other uh, milestone indicators that you're you're always monitoring? Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things is like there's obviously there's kind of the mac there's kind of the the macro environment, right? Which is which is sort of the we'll call it the entirety of the global economy or US economy, right? And then there's obviously much harder hit segments of the economy um, that you know called the travel industry, the um, you know, the transportation, the commercial real estate. So there's certain ones there that are obviously really hurting. And then there are those the small group that's really benefiting. Right, that are the cloud, you know, the cloud vendors, the Zooms, the Slacks, and so you have you have these two kind of bookends, right? And so what we're trying to understand is that, like, you know, as we look at our own customer base, right, one of the things we're doing is obviously focusing, you know, we're we're not going to go after and, and try to to engage or or sell new customers in which they are clearly uh, in in a duress situation and they're trying to save themselves, right? Um, but what we are do, what we are seeing, you know, what's interesting is some indicators is that a lot of companies that are not, you know, take if you were, if you take that small bucket and then you look at the rest of all the industries, a lot of them are now saying, wow, like this is a wake up call that we've got to be much more digitally forward, digitally focused, remote focused, you know, able to transact without brick and mortar, um, all those things, right? And all that requires software. And so what we're seeing is like, yes, there's an impacted industry industries like, I mean, obviously cruise line, stuff like that, that are really, really just trying to survive. But there's a lot of companies that are saying, let's get, let's use this time to get stronger digitally. Um, and, and we help companies do that. So we're lucky to see sort of some of that tailwind, if you will. Uh, and so those are some of the indicators we're seeing as pipeline for us. Like we can see some increase in pipeline, we call it, which is leading indicators of, of growth. And it's growing and, and more so than in some sectors than it used to be. Um, so that's one positive indicator. The other more global indicator is obviously unemployment is, is, is skyrocketing. And, you know, if you look at it, the charts today, I think we're at 30 million unemployed, which is, which is horrible. Now this, the small silver lining is at least the number of, um, 
the number of claims is declining. It's still dramatically large. But, you know, as we start to ease some businesses open over the summer, I think we'll start to see some of that subside. Um, so we're kind of watching that and see, again, how does that trickle into our own our own customers and our own prospects, right? Are they freeing up? Like we did at the very beginning, we saw companies deer in headlights where they were just like, like us, where they're saying, whoa, we can't do anything. Like we're just, we don't, we're frozen. We're, we're putting our head in the sand. And now people have woken up. It's a challenging time, but people are trying to, to move forward. So we're kind of looking at those as the indicators. So we're going to jump to our uh, finance strategic moment question. Uh, was there something that you saw along the way during your career as you looked into the numbers that led you to change the course of the organization, that led you to avoid a risk, that led you to do something very differently as a, as a finance leader? Anything come to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? One of the ones that, um, that comes to mind, you know, it is interesting and it may seem a little counterintuitive, but when we were at Ariba, um, and I worked very closely with the CFO, so I was running FP&A. And uh, one of the items we, we, we noticed that as we came out of, this is actually coming out of the 08 recession. So we were coming out of the 08 recession into 09 and, and, and slow recovery. We had a large organization that performed services, uh, paid for services, time and materials um, that were related, but not directly uh, associated with our software. And while it did, in the recession, it paid bills um, because it generated some profit. What we realized is coming out of the recession is that 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 we, it was actually going to be distracting from our recovery and our software efforts. And the CFO and I were partnering on this. And what was the what was kind of an eye opener was that you know what like this business could we were looking at it and said this business could really thrive it went under, under, under a different ownership and a different model than a software company because they're adding value added services. Think of it as an Accenture type services offering. And so we, we decided to push uh, what the divestment of that business, which was, which is not, you know, divesting a business is very, very uh, let's just say it's never popular, right. With a um, particularly on the surface, because you're separating people that have worked together forever. But, but you know what, the proudest moment and the CFO, I will give him a lot of credit, pushed, pushed us and pushed me and we pushed together. But turns out we actually sold that business to Accenture, uh, which ended up becoming one of their global uh, divisions, powerhouses, and grew amazingly well. And then even referred business back to Ariba. And, and we were able to, uh, to, to focus on the software and generate more recurring revenue, which drove our valuation up. So that was like kind of an aha moment back in my you know early leadership days that said, wow, like, Sometimes, you know, like doing the hard thing, you know, and if you can see it and you can see it in the numbers and you can see that it, both parties would benefit truly was a synergy. Um, you need to keep pushing um, because at the end, if you're confident that both parties are going to benefit, you know, it's a win-win. And, um, and it, we were lucky. I mean, whether it's lucky or intuition or, you know, whatever it is, but, uh, but that was a really powerful moment where, where I realized that you got to kind of look at the business in totality and understand the parts and where some can be accretive, some may not be, uh, and really not be a. You got to look into the business. And you can't just look top down, right? Like, and that gets back to my point: is as a good CFO looks at all the components, you know, not just the P and L and the top down, because you'll miss a lot, right? If you don't do that. When we come back, CFO John Bonney enters the mentoring round. 
The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Hello, we're back, and CFO John Bonney is with us entering the mentoring round. John, we begin by asking you to think back to that first time you stepped into a CFO role. What is that piece of advice uh, you could go back in time and whisper in your ear, perhaps? Anything come to mind? Yeah, one of the one of the things I you know learned quickly is don't take for granted what sort of um what's transpired since you arrived right like i think a lot of times when people get in a new job or new cfo they may just kind of say hey we're we're plowing forward in this new way that i want to do things um which which is great i mean that's that's part of why you're hired clearly as a change agent um but one of my learnings early on was before you take too many actions on that you've got to really understand where you came from where the companies come from right? What systems are in place? How, like, you know, a, a good saying, uh, you know, an FP&A says, you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been, right? That's one of my favorite expressions. And that's what I, I use controllers and FP&A people to, 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 to work together because one without the other doesn't work, right? And, and so that was one of my learnings early on is like, you know, you have to be very, you have to dive in, not just looking forward, but you got to look back at your historical information your systems um and understand are they are they being are they correct right are they being are, you know what what gaps were there what you know how do they look and really examine it almost with a fresh set of eyes so that you don't take for granted something you may think is right or wrong um coming in um, a lot of times you'll find things that are great and you want to leverage them and bring them forward that you may not have known sometimes you'll find things that you thought were correct um, or coming in you assume were correct we're not so that, that's just one piece of advice I have is that really take the time to understand the history of the company, specifically in finance, right? What systems, how are they closing? What do the trends look like? What looks unusual? What doesn't look unusual? And then I did a lot of surveying, you know, with, with people in the business and finding out what do they think is working? What do they don't think is working? Um, that's just kind of my, one of my overarching, I think, advice for folks jumping into that role for the first time. Um, we always like to ask uh, finance leaders to tell us a little bit about their personal habits or daily routine. Is there some piece of what you do on a daily basis that you believe in some way and on the personal side that is, and it might be exercise, it might be just some part of your daily routine that you believe has contributed to the professional side, something that you do in your daily activities that, uh, is uh you know perhaps outside the office but something that's contributed to your success anything you think yeah i think you know one of the things i keep very um sacred is you know and this is kind of 
you know, I'll rephrase it as sort of an hour to yourself, literally. And it sounds simple, but, you know, I think in today's day and age, particularly if you're, you know, working in a, as an executive at, a, at companies or in finance, I mean, there's, there's a go, 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 as, as you know, right. Of people constantly working, constantly drumbeat. And even now with the current, with a lot of people working from home in the current coronavirus situation is, you know, we're dealing with a, this at work a lot where people feel like they always have to be on, right? Like, in other words, like there is no off time. And one of the things I learned early on is you have to take off time, even as an executive, even as this, if you're brand new out of school or you're a 30 year veteran. Um, you know, for me personally, what I do is I'm a morning person. So that's just my nature. So I block out an hour every morning and whether it's typically exercise Whatever it is, is, is it's my time and there's no list going on. There's no mind, there's no mind, you know, running. Uh, and, and it's literally kind of your own time, right? Because if you don't do that, I find that I, you tend to get caught up in your own and you don't work as effectively later on. So that's a simple one. And I think it's more important than ever nowadays when this kind of always on is, you know, an hour at a minimum, like just have it for yourself. Is there a book you'd recommend? to aspiring finance leaders. And it doesn't have to be a business book, can be a novel, can be, a, you know, something that uh, just caught your eye and you enjoyed. You know, one of the books, I, what I think is so interesting, and this kind of brings out maybe a little of the statistic geeks in me is that, and it's, it's an older book, but he's written a few. And this one had a big influence on me though, where it kind of gets back to the point about numbers, understanding numbers and, and what they mean and what you see in the world uh, a lot of times uh, may make sense or not make sense, but when you deconstruct on some of the incentives behind it, the numbers behind it, and so I, you probably it's an old one, but Freakonomics by Malcolm Gladwell is a is a just a phenomenal book if you're you know into that sort of cause and effect and wondering why you know where there's certain incentives in the world and and then they're driven by numbers and why or how people operate right and and it's a pretty you know it's a pretty pretty interesting book that uh, that, I, that I recommend folks look at to understand some of that. Okay, we're up to our final question where we ask you to look forward finally for us and share with us your priorities uh, going forward over the next 12 months. What come to mind? Yeah, you know, I think right now, I think as you said a little bit on this earlier is you know, running any business, you got to have your pulse on the business, right? Uh, all the time, you know, frequently. Um, I think even now more than ever, right? When, when, when we're in a very uncertain time like now, um, it's important for companies to find a balance of, of not overreacting to what's going on, but, but understanding the pulse and the trends. I mean, as I mentioned before, right now as a company, right, we've decided, um, that we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're monitoring things weekly, right? Daily. And we're trying to look at trends of those leading indicators that we talked about, right? About the pipeline. You know, what are we seeing with our customers usage? We're, you know, we're, we're really diving in now to understand our customers. How quickly are they up and adopting our product or where did they stumble or where did they not? And, and we're using a lot of this to, to kind of constantly refine our operating cadence and how we build our product and how we serve our customer. And so I would say, you know, that's something a company should always be doing. But but what I think in this next 12 months is that what we want to keep an eye on is that for us, we are high growth. We're in a, you know, we're in a competitive space that's growing. And what we don't want to do is, is, is we don't want to overinvest. 
but we don't want to underinvest. And we, if, if the market starts to recover quicker, we got to be there to put the, to put the, to put the uh, pedal to the metal, so to speak, but not all the way. And if, if we see things stumble further, we got to be prepared to potentially scale back. So we're just being much more attuned to the leading indicators, the trends, um, and, and, and really trying to stay on top of that. And then when you see a sustainable trend, not just a, a blip, that's when you start to react and, or proactively react, if that makes sense. Um, so that's what we're watching, you know, and, you know, we're, we're, we're making sure we have, as you said, capital in the bank. We're, we're going to weather this out. We're, we're luckier than a lot because software, what we do helps software companies, um, or sorry, helps companies with their own software, kind of build their own and thrive. So we're kind of watching uh, and hoping the best that we get out of this as soon as we can. John Bonney, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. Great to talk to you. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.